At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Good morning. Great to see you here on the Sunday after Easter. I love it. I want to ask you a question today. I want to begin by asking you what you do when you are confused. When you are confused, what is it that you do? And I'm, I'm going to just kind of wipe off Google from the table, okay? That, that doesn't count. What I'm talking about is kind of the vibe you have when you are confused. Do you get the, the furl in your eyebrow? Do you kind of tilt your head to the side maybe or rub your beard? Confused. Recently, I was with a friend and we were driving in downtown Detroit. It was opening day for the Tigers and we were driving around downtown and we were trying to find a parking space. (laughs) We were confused. You see, amidst the cars that were parking in non-parking spaces and the construction vehicles that were propped right in the middle of the road and the large groups of people who were kind of walking in front of us, There was a lot of confusion. Was there a proper path for us to take? What was the right direction in that moment? Where should we go? Full confession, full transparency, we were confused. Now, I don't have video to prove it, but I'm pretty sure that I rubbed my beard a few times and thought, hmm, I'm not sure what to do. See, confusion... It gets the best of us sometimes, doesn't it? Confusion. Whether we're talking about a new assignment at work that our boss comes and places on our desk that we don't really know how to navigate. Perhaps we're facing a difficult exam in school or maybe even trying to figure out one of those fancy insurance forms. There are many things in our lives that bring us to a point of confusion. When it comes to matters of faith, specifically a biblically rooted, doctrinally rich faith, there's much confusion about the topic that we are looking at today. You see, this morning we are reflecting on the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. As I begin this message, I want to be brutally honest with you. I want to just start out being incredibly candid. There are few things more confusing, few things more misunderstood, and catch this one, few things more misrepresented than the work of the Holy Spirit, than the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What does he do? Do I have him? And if I don't have him, how do I get the Holy Spirit? 
Well, church family, today we are going to be digging into a rather intriguing passage of Scripture. And I believe that passage of Scripture will help us kind of understand and maybe answer some of those questions today and maybe take away some of the confusion, some of the misunderstanding or some of the misrepresentation. Now, you know, before we turn to God's word, we're going to pray. Would you join me? Gracious God, our heavenly Father, we thank you that we can pray. We thank you for what we experienced last week as we reflected upon your son Jesus upon the cross and the significance of what that work accomplished on our behalf. But God, we celebrate that we didn't stay at the cross, that we came to a tomb that was empty and that we get to experience through Christ, through our identity in him, we get to experience that type of resurrection. And so God, it is because of that resurrection power that we are here today and that we come and we desire to submit our hearts, to submit our minds to you for what you desire to teach us about your spirit. God, we're here because we desire to know truth. And we acknowledge that your word is truth. So God, as we turn to your word, would you give us eyes to see this truth clearly? God, we ask that you give us ears to hear this truth clearly. And then give us the boldness that it's going to take to live in this truth. God, we ask all of these things in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen. White Lake family, as you know, we are in the middle of a sermon series called The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And together we are seeking to understand truth as it is expressed in the context of something called the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is a statement of doctrine. And what that creed seeks to do is summarize the Bible's truth claims. So what the Bible claims to be true, the Apostles' Creed seeks to capture it together, summarize it, and condense it into these, these powerful statements of faith. And so there are two things that I want to highlight for us specifically before we dig in. The first is that this Apostles' Creed highlights essential beliefs. They highlight essential doctrine. I want to be very clear about this sound doctrine matters today just as much as it did when the second century when the Apostles' Creed was established. It matters today. It's not something we just brush past and you can have your view and I can have my view and it's equally accurate and true and fair that actually isn't true. Truth matters you might say, well, why are you standing on that so firmly? Why are you making such a bold statement about that? Because truth is under attack in our culture today. Fact is, truth no longer seems to matter. It's your ideology, it's your feelings that seems to have taken precedent over truth. This is what some would say when we live in a post-truth culture. We have moved beyond the need for truth. 
That's what our culture will tell us. And I want you to know that that's faulty thinking. That's not right. Truth matters to God and it matters in God's church. Now, the second thing I want to highlight for us as we dig in is the importance of knowing that the Apostles' Creed was created to help believers understand the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And thereby proclaiming and declaring and stating very clearly the essence of the gospel. That as we understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will have an understanding of the good news. And so as we continue to kind of work through the Apostles' Creed as a church family, we come to this brief sentence. Actually, we come to a whole series of little sentences. They are power-packed to be sure, but they... They're very important for us today. And so we're going to proclaim the first one together today. And that is this. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I didn't hear you guys strong enough. I want you to do that again. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now with that as our foundation, let's grab our Bibles. Turn to the New Testament book of Acts. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be reading a rather strange story, I confess to you, is a strange story of a man named Simon. We're looking at Acts chapter 8. And what we're going to do is oftentimes I will read the whole of the text. We're not going to do that today. We're going to read the text in three segments or three scenes in this case. And each scene will tell us something different, something unique, something significant about the Holy Spirit. Let's go there together. Acts 8. We're going to pick it up at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. And he had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And so they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And so they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The first scene of our story. It introduces us to the idea of confrontation. It's, inter it's an interaction that really gets to the heart of understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit works. So let me set the context for you. As we read that portion of Scripture, let me set the context. Philip is an evangelist. And he's empowered by God to proclaim the truth like evangelists do and to do miracles. So he enters this area of Samaria and he catches the attention of a man named Simon. Now Simon was a guy who performed tricks and magic and did things with sleight of hand. 
But Simon knew that he'd been fooling people. Simon knew that he didn't have any real power like that of Philip, like what he just saw from the evangelist named Philip. And so that brings us to a confrontation. We are confronted with the reality of a spectacle or of the spirit. They collide in this moment of confrontation. And so you see it at the simple simple proclamation of the gospel there in verse 12, where the ministry of Philip is described by Luke, who is the author of Acts. He writes and he says, about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of Philip. And so the people of Samaria are responding in faith. They hear the message of Philip and they respond in faith. And so the power of God begins to move. One prominent theologian helps us understand this a little bit better. He said, Philip's message about the name of Jesus and about the kingdom was a message of supernatural war. You see, the name of Jesus releases people from Satan's authority. So the confrontation was on full display because there were signs performed to draw attention to the individual. If I can do sleight of hand, you look at me. That's what Simon has going on. And yet, when there is power at work and through the words of Philip, what happens is the attention turns from the individual to Jesus. It's a huge transition. And it's here where the story takes a rather strange turn. When you get to verse 13, it says, Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Remember, Philip is an evangelist, so he is moving. He's proclaiming the truth, he's proclaiming the gospel, and then he is moving on. And so what happens is it says Simon himself believed, he gets baptized, and then he continues with Philip. Whoa! (laughs) What is going on here? What is happening in this moment? The magician has come to faith? Or is there something else? At work, something else going on. Now, many scholars believe that it was this display of the Holy Spirit power through Philip that actually kept Simon around, that Simon wanted to know a little bit more and wanted to see it firsthand, and so he followed what he was doing. It was the spectacle, it was the work of power that was the draw rather than the person and the work of Christ that Philip was preaching. Now today we see this in our culture as well. They're called groupies. Here's what I mean. When the movie star, when their light is shining bright, they have a following. While the athlete is performing at an incredibly high level, he has a following. While the artist is at the height of their creativity, the crowds buzz and the groupies follow Until the lights go out. And that's when everyone leaves. When the movie star isn't so famous, when the athlete 
when his skills wane, when the artist just doesn't have the creativity, the people leave. Why? Because they're not there for the person. They're there for the power. They're there for the glory. They're there for the glamour. They're there for the glitz. They're there for all of it, but not the person. Now, here's a harsh reality for people of faith. This can be true of us, too. This can be true of you and me too. When people are confronted by the truth of the gospel, there is love and there is grace and there is forgiveness in Christ. And those things are awesome. I hope every single one of us has experienced that in our own lives. I hope that's why you're here today. But if it's only the rewards that you're seeking, rather than knowing and loving and worshiping the one who died on the cross for you. Your emphasis might be misplaced. So what are you and I to learn from this first scene? What are you and I to consider from Acts chapter 8? That first segment of verses 9 through 13, it's this. The Holy Spirit is not a spectacle. He's not a spectacle. Now let's continue on in the text. Let's pick up our second scene at verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He says, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going to stop. The second scene of our story brings us to a point of confusion. Confusion. There's Peter and there's John. They're, They're praying and then there's this laying on of hands then there's this idea of a payment for the Holy Spirit. I want to receive some of that power, so I'll pay for that. Lots of confusion happening around Simon and around his faith and what is going on in this portion of the text, to be sure. I want to turn our attention within the text to specifically to verse 14. That's where Luke records that the apostles in Jerusalem get the word. Here's what it says. It says that Samaria had received the word of God. I want us to recognize that this is an important moment in the history of redemption. This is why Peter and John are sent to authenticate the validity of the gospel movement to the Samaritan people. It's very important that we understand this. Just like the Spirit had been sent at Pentecost, the Samaritans and subsequently the Gentiles need their own kind of Pentecost moment where the Spirit comes upon them in power. 
And so in verse 15, we see that Peter and John pray that God would move, and then it happens. Look at verse 17. We're told that the Samaritan believers received the Holy Spirit. You see, the Samaritans are no longer outsiders to the promise of God. They're no longer outsiders. And it's in this moment that we see more of the confusion that sort of is happening in the head of Simon. As Luke gives us details in Acts 8, one thing he doesn't give us is any indication that Simon himself had actually received the Holy Spirit. You can look through that text, you can read it five times, it's not there. It's very curious. Instead, what we find is that Simon is all about getting some of that magic power that the disciples had. You might say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, that seems a little harsh. How do you know that? Well, because he offered to pay for it. He offered to buy it. Church, this brings us to the point of confusion. Is the spirit gained? Can we gain it? Or is the spirit given? Let me be very clear. The Holy Spirit isn't for purchase. It cannot be bought for selfish gain. Instead, the spirit is given by God to all who believe. You see, true biblical faith is only attainable by the grace of God the Father. Through faith in Jesus, the Son, in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is a true biblical faith. So let's interpret the story of Simon for just a moment to engage a little bit of your personal story and mine. To be honest here, while many of us haven't gone to the Holy Spirit and said I'd like to pay for a little bit of that power, many of us share Simon's desire to actually see God at work in power in our own lives. We desire that up close and personal. We desire that the Spirit of God would move. And let me be perfectly clear, if you are in Christ today by faith, that is a healthy desire. That is good. You want to see God move in you. How can I say that? Well, because the Spirit is not a magic trick. The Holy Spirit is not some secret force. But the Holy Spirit is God himself who dwells within each and every Christ follower. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 1. Having believed... You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Having believed, you're marked. If you were in Christ today through faith, you are marked by the Holy Spirit. So for you and I to desire to see the Holy Spirit at work is actually to desire God moving in our lives, moving in us and moving through us to mold us and to shape us more closely into the image of Christ, to be more like Jesus. You know, each week when our staff team gets together for our staff meeting here at the church, 
We typically meet out in our lobby and we gather just for some time together to pray, to go over the business of the church, but we begin our meetings talking about gospel movement. And what that is, is that gives us an opportunity for us to share with one another how the Holy Spirit is working here in our church, whether that's in an area of ministry that we oversee, over the big church, over friends that we have within the context of the church. And let me tell you, God has been at work in really significant ways lately. Just this week, we heard of a young man who came to faith on Good Friday. We saw many answers to prayer during Holy Week. We heard of God's amazing protection on a family member in the midst of this crazy storm of activity. God showed up and provided amazing protection. And we heard of a woman whose faith has been transformed by the faithful reading of God's word. Church, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. And it's awesome. It's awesome. Now, let's return to our final scene today. We're going to look at verses 20 through 24. Let's go there together. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity." And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. The third scene today offers us correction. It leads us to correction. And while it could be viewed as kind of shaming or this kind of intense scolding, I would encourage you to view what we just read a little bit differently as a firm, loving, teaching correction. It's the same thing that a parent does when we see a child going wayward, where we see a child walking off the path. We speak lovingly, we speak firmly to those issues. And that's what Peter does in this moment. He speaks firmly and directly upon truth. He sees what's happening with Simon, and so he addresses it head on. He rebukes him in the moment. He calls him not to some religious activity. Instead, he calls him to repentance. He calls him to repentance. This shows us that the Spirit brings correction. It doesn't bring religiosity. Instead, it leads us to repentance. Now remember, repentance is a 180 degree turn. If I am in sin and I am walking in this direction, repentance doesn't mean I turn a little bit and keep going. No, no, no. It means I turn around 180 degrees and walk the other way. I flee from whatever that sin is in my life. 
That is exactly how Peter is guiding Simon in this moment. He's challenging him. He says, you have your manipulative ways. Turn from them. The sorcery that you're practicing, it's self-seeking. Turn from it. The sin that has you ensnared, turn from it. Repent. Turn to faith in Jesus the Christ. Church, this is true of what God asks of all who come to him. All who come to him. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the Galatian believers. Here's what he writes. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law, religiosity, or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So church, let's consider the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes the hearts of men, women, and children. The Holy Spirit is given to all who turn from our religious activity to genuine faith and repentance. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God to all who believe, and the Holy Spirit gives us exactly what we need to walk in faith. I love the way a theologian by the name of Herman Bavink sums it up. Here's what he says. He said, the whole life of the Christian is a walking in the Spirit. I want to close today by answering one important question. Many people ask this question when it pertains to the Spirit, so I want to address it head on. How do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Hear Paul's words to the Galatians once again. He's going to describe the fruit of the Spirit's work in the lives of all who believe. He said there's love, there's joy, there's peace, there's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, all of these are signs in the life of the follower of Christ. They reveal the fruit of God's work through the Spirit. So instead of falling into the trap of Simon by seeking powerful and spectacular and external signs, look to the quiet. Look to the humble signs that reveal the beauty of our Trinitarian God. Well, like family, there's no reason to be confused this morning. There's no reason to be confused because the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is given to all who believe first to change our heart and then to change our life. And this is why All God's people can boldly proclaim, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.